Welcome to the Christian Combatives Podcast. Um, today's episode is hosted by Christcord. This is a Discord Christian server, discord.gg forward slash Christian. Uh, go ahead and join it if you'd like that. They are hosting us today. And in addition to being hosted, streaming live on the server, I'm also being joined by a member of the server, Alabast, and uh, haven't decided on a role for him yet. I don't know what the title is. I, I was thinking producer. That sounds that sounds nice. But he doesn't get paid. His job is to to butt in and to uh, to comment, have the conversation with me as we go. Um, if you would also, like to pay me, I'll take it. <laughs> well, as long as I mean, and, and, keep, and keep your eye out for the for the chat. One of the benefits of being able to, to stream this rather than uh, to stream this on the server rather than just record it is that as I'm streaming it, the people who are listening, uh, they can contribute, they can ask questions, they can point things out, um, stuff like that. And it makes the conversation a lot more interesting than if I just ramble for 20 minutes on my own. In any case, the topic for today that we're going to be talking about is the Asbury, Revi- Asbury Revival, the role of emotion in worship, faith, and the presence of the Holy Spirit. Um, now, the Asbury Revol- Revival, for those who aren't familiar with it, uh, there's a, um, uh, is it, a- uh, and the name of the town is Asbury, I believe, and uh, basically they've got, it's a, it's a religious school where people are required to go to church for, you know, a certain number, number of times uh, in a year. They did the same thing with us at seminary. Basically, you were, cry- you were required to go to church service um, Basically, every every Wednesday you would have uh, you would have the Lord's Supper, but every day that you were in class, you were, you were required to go to the church service uh, on campus. We had a chapel on campus. Now, this Asbury campus that they had, um, I guess what had happened was they had they had a, a worship service uh, as normal, and in the worship service, um, one of the worship leaders or the pastor. He gave a sermon, and people felt particularly convicted by the sermon. Um, I've heard clips of it. I haven't actually sat down and, and listened to the whole thing. Um, but the gist of it is that he actually had, if he had law and gospel, he had a significant amount of law, which, you know, it's, it, it's important. And people heard the law, and they were convicted by it. So as the service ended, uh, people stuck around and, and continued to continue to worship. And um, and I guess they continued to sing and, uh, and pray together and, well, this kind of snowballed into a, a larger a larger sort of event where more and more people would join in. It wouldn't just be, you know, the couple of people who hang back. Uh, you, you'll see this in, in other churches of other denominations as well. Sometimes after service, some people will stay behind to pray. Uh, some people stay behind to socialize and, and even, you know, sing or practice practice hymns and stuff like that. So that's that in and of itself isn't particularly unique to Asbury um, or to a, any revival. But in this case, a couple of people stayed behind, and then it kind of it kind of grew and it grew and it grew. And for some reason or another, um, it got picked up um, by very various media outlets, uh, and uh, everybody started saying, "Well, Asbury is having a revival," and the idea being that um, that the Holy Spirit was present here at some. And as Asbury themselves did not refer to it as a revival; they had a different term they used, but it wasn't revival that they used. But the idea mm-hmm. being that they had. Um, that the Holy Spirit was working in a special way there, and people were coming from all over the place to come and, and experience this sort of special event where all these people were were worshiping uh, worshiping together. Um, so I didn't really want to specifically get into the Asbury Revival. That's just something that was in the news lately, and this is kind of what sparked off the the interest in um, in emotion, in in worship and stuff. So one of the things that started happening afterwards is, you know, people were... There, there was, you know, Bible readings and preachings and testimonies and stuff like that being given. Uh, and, and people were coming on stage and they were, they were confessing their sins. And 
because they weren't a proper Lutheran congregation or even a, a, an almost proper Roman Catholic congregation, you didn't have the priest up there or the pastor up there absolving them, but you had kind of the congregation uh, communal, communally proclaiming the absolution of Christ, which, you know, it's, it's, it's fine. That's good. It's true. You know, Christ absolves you of your sin or something like that, or Christ forgives your yeah. sin. Um, so that, that's good in and of itself. Um, and, and this kind of, um, this kind of thing, well, so the question is, is, is this good or bad? Is this something that we want to say, okay, this is good. Um, what are the, what are the dangers of such an event and what are the possible benefits in terms of kind of spreading the Christian faith for such an event? So just based on the event I described, um, let's say that that's kind of the standard for what a revival is. Yeah, Alabas, if I asked you, okay, uh, this mm-hmm. is the event that's happening, would you say, you know, what would you be concerned about and what would you be, you know, happy about and excited about? So my immediate thought with it is great. It went on, it happened. Uh, people stuck around and it snowballed. People came from all over. But what's the demographic of people that's actually coming? Are people hearing about, oh, these people have been worshiping at this place for how many days? It's a revival. I'm going to go. And they're just already Christians. So it's really just a big gathering of Christians mainly from all over the world and maybe a few converts and any number of converts is good. Uh, so not discounting that. But how uh, I, I, I would like to know how many people it's actually uh, converting or changing uh lives for in the long runner and how much is it acting you know like a like a like a bible camp send teenagers <laughs> off to a camp they get all uh gung-ho about it go home read their bible for three days and then it's it's just not as fun when you're not playing tag after lunch uh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah i i had a similar experience i went to the um the national youth gathering that's our our lutheran that's uh, one of the lutheran lcms um official gatherings I wish I'd gotten to go one of those. I missed it by just a year. It was, well, I went as a, I mean, you can go as a chaperone now, but uh, I it went, uh, this was my first time going as a chaperone and I was, I was sticking them up the whole time. I was, I was nitpicking everything. <laughs> <laughs> and there was, I mean, there was some, some good things. And I think that there was a, a lot of overlap with kind of the, the revival um, aspect of, of these are, well, you, you said something in particular, you said uh, for the long run. For the long run, mm-hmm. how many how many of these are Christian converts for the long run? And we do have examples of people who would show up who not who aren't necessarily Christian. You would have kind of quote unquote famous Christians, kind of evangelical superstar type TV preachers, uh, people mm-hmm. like that would show up. Um, and the interesting thing was that, that at least the Asbury revival is is they were actually con- containing them. They, they they would show up, and it wasn't like okay, let's invite the celebrity on stage to give his testimony or to take over or anything like that. They were allowed to come, but then sit quietly in the in, in, in the rafters. Um, That's good, at yeah. least. <laughs> oh yeah, there was. I mean, uh, God is a God of order, uh, and mm-hmm. and this is. I, I think it's good that it wasn't just it wasn't just pure chaos. It was actually some organization behind it, uh, and it didn't get kind of hijacked by any specific movements. I mean, there were some political figures that showed up. I think Tucker Carlson uh, wanted to show up, and they they asked him if he please would not, <laughs> just because they didn't want it to turn it. Good on them. Yeah, good on them. I mean. It, it, <laughs> <laughs> they, they were saying, well, we hate Tucker Carlson, but they were saying, you know, this isn't really what this is about. Uh, we would. It's not a political to, event. Know. We don't need a big political figure to sh- show up. It, yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's exactly it. So then I wonder, okay, well, so famous people, politics aside, they show up and that was how that was dealt with. But what about the people who showed up? Let's say somebody showed up and, and there's, you know, what is this party that's going on in this, in this relatively small town? I, the reason they actually, they ended, quote unquote, um, they ended the revival was because the town wasn't able to handle the infrastructure. They didn't have enough, you know, there weren't enough rooms really? in the inn. There weren't enough uh, streets and parking <laughs> and stuff. So they said, okay, we've got to, we've got to, we've got to end this now. 
<laughs> so they, they overrode the Holy Spirit and said, sorry, <laughs> we're done. Um, yeah, where the school administration says, if you want to keep it up, you have to take it off campus because we just we just cannot facilitate, you know, all the people moving around. It was, you know, health hazards and stuff like that. That's kind of the best reason for something to end. <laughs> yeah, it's like, yeah, we have to, we just can't handle it anymore. So, okay. okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it didn't end. Yeah. So, okay. So, 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 so I think in terms of the benefits and, and something that I would like to have, I mean, there's no way to really know this, but I, I would like to have known, okay, how many people were, if they, if they showed up, non-Christians showed up, just interesting. What is going on on this campus? They stuck around, you know, maybe they heard some of the, they heard some of the preaching. Um, um, they heard some of the terrible contemporary music, uh, but, but then they heard some of the people kind of confessing, confessing their sins. Cause apparently this was a fairly emotional thing where, you know, people would confess, would confess, you know, really private and, and, and really, you know, heartbreaking sins. Uh, and then they would, they would hear about the forgiveness, forgiveness of Christ, which is, is, I think that that in and of itself, that's, that's a good thing. I mean, um, how it's handled, you know, maybe could be handled better or worse, but the fact that people are confessing their sins with fellow brothers and sisters in Christ and receiving God's forgiveness, that mm-hmm. in and of itself is a good thing. But okay. So a non-Christian comes on campus, they experience this sort of thing. What, what is their takeaway? Are they going to walk away from it and, and kind of have a lifelong, a lifelong faith? Or is this something the, the, the Bible camp sort of experience where they walk on and say, well, this is interesting. I have fellowship. Look, everybody's getting along. Um, uh, everybody's kind of, you know, bouncing up and down and singing together and stuff like that. Um, and, and this is fantastic. I want to be a part of this this thing. And they're, they're really rather latching onto the experience of the moment uh, rather than the underlying message that the experience is supposed to be celebrating. We had, um, when I was in, in, in the Marine Corps boot camp, we had a similar th- sort of thing. The, uh, the general Protestant services, man, they were <laughs> they were chaotic. You would have, I mean, you would cram a whole bunch of Marines together and, and a bunch of, and everybody had a shaved head and everybody stinks because they, you know, uh, and everybody's sick and coughing. But you'd have all these people swaying back and forth singing, uh, there, there is um, no God like Jehovah or something, the waves of Elijah or something. I don't know, some contemporary song I wasn't familiar mm-hmm. with, but everybody else knew and they're just bobbing up and down and dancing and everybody was crying and stuff. Then you get out of boot camp and within the next month, all those same people um, they're all passed out in their barracks, you know, drunk or they're, you know, there's, they're not going to church anymore. So for them, it was kind of the experience of the moment. And that, that's the question that I'm kind of curious about. I think that's, that's even potentially the danger of of kind of going and seeing Christianity as this kind of happy, um, camp, campfire experience. Uh, I think that can actually be dangerous. Yeah. Giving people's first experience with Christianity, not being the uh, day to day, but the big event, it, 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 it it's totally different. And it makes it so when you're a Christian living your day to day life, uh, do your best to avoid sin. You should be reading your Bible because it's good to be in God's word and generally just, you know, live out Christ, work out your faith, live out, uh, live out Christ, preach the gospel to other people when the opportunity arises. But it's not the jumping and singing is not every day. When a person's first experience with it and first uh, first desire to join it is in those big hoppy things, as soon as they get home and it's not like that every day, it it just goes away. <laughs> I, I, I'm scared of so not just um, not just first experience. I'm scared of that sort of that sort of same thing applying to. Um, I don't want to say just, well, everyday Christians, uh, the, the yeah. normal run of the mill Christian. So you've got a normal run of the mill Christian, uh, and they, they do their, their, their Bible stuff and they do their, you know, what, what Christians generally tend to do, but then they go to this experience and, 
And in this experience, they're told, okay, well, the Holy Spirit is present here. Uh, and they kind of get this idea that they know that the Holy Spirit is present because they can feel the presence of the Spirit. That was one of the, the phrases mm-hmm. that jumped out to me that really bugged me, is people would say, I could feel the presence of the Spirit. And I do think maybe to some degree the Holy Spirit does make himself known in in. So, for example, uh, maybe you're terrified, you're in prison, you're, you know, something like that, and the Holy Spirit is the comforter, and he, and he comforts you. And it, in some degree, you can kind of, your emotions are changed, or you're, you're, you're more calm, or something like that, as a result of the action of the Holy Spirit. But I, I really think that it's dangerous to say, I know that the Holy Spirit is here because I can feel him, because the converse of that is, that when I don't feel it anymore, when I don't feel this hype and this this excitement and this joy, does that then mean that the Holy Spirit has departed? That He's not here uh, with me or here in this congregation? Absolutely, Su- super valid worry. Um, you know, I I went to for everyone listening. I w- did my undergrad. Uh, I did the pre seminary program at Concordia University in Chicago. Uh, one of the classes we had to take in the pre-seminary program was called Christian Life, which was really just a funky new title for Intro to Lutheran Theology 2. Um, <laughs> but uh, one of the, uh, I can't remember if it was a unit that we were on for a week or two, or if it was just a topic. I I, I can't remember. But uh, a paper that I got to read that really, really stuck out to me, and I wish I could remember who it was by, too, because this was back in... Oh, it was back in uh, spring semester of 2020 because uh, I'd never got to finish the class because COVID started and the professor was a dual citizen of America and uh, or the, of the United States and Canada, and he was in the reserves for the Canadian military. So when COVID, when COVID started, he got shipped off and the class just kind of ended unceremoniously. <laughs> um, oh, well. Yeah. Um, he had to go fight but, COVID. <laughs> Absolutely. That's that's. <laughs> he has to go banish COVID nineteen well, from I was all thinking, of Canada. Yeah, I was thinking super soakers <laughs> filled with a, a mixture of holy water and hand sanitizer. Yeah. Oh, sorry, um, I sorry to interrupt. Go on. No, yeah, no, you're good. Um, with a paper, I can't remember who it was by, but it was talking about the uh, equilibrium of liturgy and uh, what was the word that he used? It, I think it was uh, mysticism, oh, but okay. really he was. I think he used the words liturgy and mysticism, but in general, he was talking about the uh, juxtaposition of an ordered liturgical service and an emotional service. And just the first part of the paper was just talking about uh, the differences between them, the errors with both, and then how we need to merge them. So in the Lutheran church, or at least the ones that I go to, we tend to really like uh liturgy we like order we go in we sing the hymns out of the book we say the words in the book and we get a sermon out of the uh lectionary for that day and his point with that uh was when though when you just go through these steps when you're just going and you're taking communion and you're leaving and then the rest of your week isn't ordered like that it's uh it becomes a dead liturgy you're uh basically working out Christianity and you know you're being a good Christian because you're following these prescribed steps. The opposite, though, the the, the mysticism that he was talking about is uh, being driven purely by emotion. Maybe somebody in one of those uh, dead liturgical tur- churches 
uh, realizes, or they go to one of these events, and they see everybody jumping and singing. Everybody is on fire for Christ, is, is the word that the Baptist <laughs> church I went Christ, to yeah. used. Yeah, on fire for Christ, always. Uh, but everyone was on fire for Christ, and they think, I need to bring this back home. I need to bring this to my church. And it gets flipped around, and suddenly there's the opposite side. Every experience with God needs to be a big emotional experience. We don't need the liturgy because that's not authentic. That's not coming from the heart. I don't feel anything when I say these words out of a book, so uh, we just need to do away with it. We don't need any pre-written prayers. We need to say everything from the heart right now, and then eventually when that gets boring, I guess we add smoke machines and rock bands, and it just it snowballs until the uh, gospel is thrown away. And inevitably, in those sorts of situations, I think either a place goes full law because that's really popular, or the gospel gets so watered down that it's ignored uh especially with uh we see things like mega churches and all mega churches are the big emotional experience because that's the only way you get to be a mega church is through the constant uh growth of a watered down gospel and the big emotional experience every single week but uh when a church can justify that behavior by pure numbers alone but then not actually teach anything and people in the congregation don't actually know anything about uh christ or uh the church or god in general it's not getting anywhere uh and ultimately once you dispose of the uh liturgy once you dispose of that order and once really uh you separate yourself from the history of christianity right by separating yourself from the liturgy and these the theologians and the big thinkers of the past it, it goes off in a whole different direction. So uh, we should be trying to meet somewhere in the middle. The liturgy is a fantastic connection, doorway to the past that we are doing. <clears throat> excuse me. That we're doing an order of service, singing the hymns and the canticles that... Oh, my throat's dry all of a sudden. Uh, that the church has been singing, chanting for uh, 2,000 years. We are connected when we go up for communion. And we are uh, participating in the communion of the saints at the... Uh, wedding feast of Christ, uh, that's important, and we need to remember its importance. It's not just a step. Uh, I think the beginning of uh, Kierkegaard's Either Or, the first section is just quotes and, or just really little little, little statements, and the one that I really like is, I, I can't remember it because it's been a couple years, but it's basically just a critique of the Danish church when he was alive, where Christianity is just uh, taking communion once a week and going home. Don't have it be like that. Uh, the <laughs> yeah, do a, do a sermon. Once a year. <laughs> the sermon should be uh, uh, relevant and not pull at your heartstrings because that's not the point of a sermon. Uh, but uh, explain scripture. Make the uh, purpose of the liturgy known. Don't just say the words for the sake of saying the words. Let the people in the service know this is what the liturgy is for. We need to do a better job teaching these things and avoid the lawlessness of pure emotion and the pure uh, dead liturgy of just going through the motions that liturgical churches are so criticized for. Yeah, so uh, I think, I mean, I think there's kind of, yeah, so there, there there's a, there's a, a balance to be had. And a lot of times Lutherans are accused or sort of high church, uh, high church, uh, churches, uh, organizations are accused of being almost sterile and methodical and stuff. And, and, and there is a degree of, there is a degree of very specific ceremony. There's, you know, um, for example, in, in the church that I 
that I serve, um, we have an order that we light the candles. We have a lectionary that we, you know, every year we have on this, on this date, on this Sunday after, you know, after Christmas, we, we preach on these texts, these sort of things where there is, there is a degree of, of, of strictness and degree of, a degree of organization that to some people may seem, um, may seem out of place. So, you know, the, the, the lectionary is a perfect example is in, in some church, um, you might, you might have somebody say, well, just preach what's, you know, the Holy Spirit has laid on your heart for that, for that day. And then, and there is a time I suppose to talk about, you know, what, a topic that's maybe come up and and you want to try to look up, you know, what Bible verses relate to this topic. But I think having an underlying structure, I, I see it like having a skeleton. Your entire body is not the skeleton, but the skeleton is important. It's rigid and it holds <clears throat> things together. It's the, it's the framework for your body. There are other parts to your body as well, but you can't be completely skeleton. You can't be completely soft tissue as well. So with mm-hmm. that, I want to ask you a question, kind of in terms of your understanding historically um, of, of the figure of Martin Luther. Would you say um, Martin Luther, in all of his strictness, and you know he's got his memorize the small catechism type thing, uh, in all of mm-hmm. his strictness, would you say that Martin Luther was pushing for an emotionless, a, a, a service, a celebration of the Mass without emotion or without any, any place for emotion? Would you, would you say that that's the Lutheran sort of approach, is an emotionless service? Anyone who would say that of Luther has never read Luther. And when I say that, I don't mean that there's some specific work of Luther that they need to go look at to understand his position on this. I mean that Luther was an emotional guy, a super emotional guy. His writings about things that uh, the same topic by John Calvin would just be an absolute drag. Luther is interesting to read because every word he writes is dripping with emotion. A lot of times really angry emotion. <laughs> and lo- lots of <laughs> hyperbole you... and, and scatological. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> lots of hyperbole. Uh, but ab- ab- absolutely not uh, pushing for emotionless. And uh, you can tell through uh, his experience in... Uh, Christianity and how the Reformation uh, came about, his decision to become a monk terrified on the road (laughs) and and, and praying to a saint. I think it was uh, St. Anne uh, to survive and he'd he'd become a monk. There's there's a level of emotion there. That's not emotionless. And and, uh, as he began to uh, doubt or question uh, some of the doctrines of the Catholic Church that made him feel so helpless. His uh, priest <laughs> told him off for coming to confession too much because he was confessing very <laughs> minor things because he felt very, very strongly about them. Uh, it's the the way that I've seen it, and it's been a little while since I've read theological texts. Uh, I I graduated a little bit ago, and I I, I don't uh, work in theology anymore. Um, but Luther was described, or it was argued, that he was more of a mystic than a dead liturgical man. He loved the emotional and teaching experience of, of, of music, not the manipulative music of that you would see in a modern uh, 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 megachurch, I suppose. I, I'm trying to toe the line and not be uncharitable, so I'm... <laughs> <laughs> want to specify like the the manipulative stuff you would get in a mega church but he acknowledges that music is a special gift of god that causes an emotional thing 
or an emotional reaction and also uh, is great for teaching. In the liturgy, we do our canticles, which is uh, just the poems uh, from uh, throughout the Bible uh, put to uh, music. And uh, whenever I go to a church that actually chants them, far, far easier to remember scripture because there's music put to it. It's a fantastic teaching tool. Yeah. So I would say that, yeah, absolutely. I 100% agree with you. And, and if we're looking at kind of the Lutheran reformers, um, you, you can kind of compare and contrast the different personalities and, and the different degrees of emotion. So, for example, Martin Luther would actually, if I, if I had to put on a spectrum between uh, devoid of emotion and, and mechanical mm -hmm. to uh, to emotional, Martin Luther would be far, far more on the side of emotional, uh, based mm -hmm. on just the things that, that he, he wrote, just the, um, whether it's the table talks, whether it's the hymns, anything like that, those things that he wrote, a lot of them are just overflowing with emotion, but they're all sort of, anything that's, any, anything that's particularly involved in the Mass, involved in the service, involved in liturgy, is is structured. He has that balance. He has that mm -hmm. skeleton of these are the rigid points, and then that soft tissue of, you know, you, we also have kind of the emotional aspect. The hymns are beautiful. Uh, I mean, you can look at, you know, music of Bach, for example, a famous Lutheran composer. Uh, you, have, you have structure, but you also have music that, ha that, that, that specifically targets emotion. And the difficulty of a lot of a lot of contemporary worship and a lot of kind of megachurch approaches is that the goal the goal of the music it's not it's not to beautify and, and beautifully present something from God, but it's to specifically first and primarily target a person's emotions and then get them worked up uh, into an emotional fervor. Not so it's well now I can you know like a canticle you can better remember the words. Or somebody, you know, somebody chants the Psalms, you can remember. Or you, you know, we sing uh, the Nunc Dimittis, and, and I can remember the words of the Nunc Dimittis. You know, Lord, now let your servant depart in peace, because I've I've sung them. And you know, putting putting things to music. Uh, this was the whole the whole premise behind the Psalms, for example, is you can remember God's word because it's it's put to music and rhythm. Instead of doing that, they they they, they craft something. Um, to get people hyped up. Well, usually it's a lot of repetition. And yes, I know there's repetition mm -hmm. in the Psalms as well, but... Um, it's not near yeah. as egregious, though. <laughs> oh, yeah. Not, yes, Lord, yes, Lord, yes, yes, Lord, yes, Lord, yes, Lord, yes, yes, Lord. No, yeah, there's, uh, you know, the word of the Lord endures forever. Some, I, I forget what the phrase is, yeah. and there's one of the Psalms that they repeat it like every other uh, every other verse or something. It's just, um, something like that. But mm -hmm. yeah, so I, I, I think that there's... I think that not only is there a balance between kind of emotion... And, and, and roboticism and, and, you know, soft tissue and hard tissue. But I think that it's important that they work together. You can't just have, you know, let's, let's have equal amounts of both. Let's have stupid, uh, inane, whatever, you know, music that's just flash and no substance, and then let's throw in a psalm in the middle of it. Um, it, it, has mm -hmm. to, it has to be, it has to be ordered to, to work together. And I think that's kind of how God intended, intended worship to be. I was reading... Um, I was reading what is it Acts sixteen I think it was the Paul and Silas are in prison uh, and it says that they were that they were praying and singing in prison and I'm just I'm imagining I mean it's I wouldn't say that you know it's not like a divine service and have the Lord's supper there but mm -hmm. there's a degree of kind of this is this is a, a picture of kind of a Christian I don't know if I want to call it a worship service but this is kind of the Christian Christian way of you know uh, experiencing and and sharing. God's gifts. It's yes, there's some structure to it, but there's also some emotion to it. There's some comfort in in singing. Um, so back to go over my list of kind of uh, topics for for today's episode. 
Um, there is a pretty good question uh, yeah. that was put in chat. Do we want to go ahead and answer questions or save uh, that to the end? So yeah, we'll we'll save we'll save questions to the end. Okay. Um, uh, probably we'll start to. So I'll, I'll try to summarize and kind of wrap up a little bit of kind of what we discussed. Um, people in the chat, if you would start, if you'd start typing your questions at anybody else uh, in any other chat, start typing up the questions. Um, you can tag me. I'm, I'm, I think there's actually two chats that people are typing in right now. Uh, and, and we'll start we'll start looking at the questions and trying to trying to answer them. Um, yeah, to to wrap up uh, kind of the summary of the main the main the main topic here. So um, Asbury revival, we kind of talked about that uh, in, in detail, and and I, I think we both kind of agree that there was that there that there's a, a positive there were positive elements there. I would say that the word of God was shared there, that confession and absolution in the public sense. Uh, you know, confess your sins to one another uh, and, and proclaim the forgiveness of God. That was there as well. So th- those are good things. Um, there was some worship. There was worship of God there. Okay, that's a good thing too. Um, negative things. I think again, we both kind of agree. Uh, and you can let me know if I if I've missed any negative things. Um, the 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 kind of temporary camp experience is is that even if you're coming into the if you're coming into a Christian kind of worship experience, and you've never experienced Christianity before, you get the wrong idea of okay, well Christianity is just this kind of it's a concert, uh, and I and I've gone to better concerts <laughs> as well. Or you know, oh, it's a concert, so I I experience the Holy Spirit when I'm in a Christian concert, and then I go and experience the Holy Spirit when I'm you know listening to Slipknot or something like that. You know, <laughs> some some other some other concert mm-hmm. experience. Uh, so there's the positive and, and the negative would kind of be one. I would say maybe a false understanding of kind of what all the Christian service has to offer. It, it offers so much more. I didn't see anything about the sacraments there. Uh, which which is a tragedy because that is a staple of uh, of Christian Christians meeting together. Uh, do not neglect the gathering of the saints. Uh, you know, it talks about um, the Bible talks about them receiving communion uh, frequently when they when they met together. Obviously, you can't have a baptism at every service because at a certain point you run out of people to baptize. But but you know, mm-hmm. I, I would like to. Uh, th- those are more things that they can have that weren't necessarily at the Asbury Revival. The other negative aspect that we just just lightly touched on is this concept of, well, the Holy Spirit is here because the emotion is here. And somehow if I visit the Asbury Revival, I can catch it like a contagious disease, then bring it back to my church, and my church can have a revival. And that actually, I'd say that actually kind of irritates me a bit. Because the Bible says, wherever two or three are gathered in my name, there I am also. The fact of the matter is that if you're looking for a place for the Holy Spirit to be with you when you're worshiping, that is every Sunday or, you know, Wednesday or whenever you go to church. That is every Sunday at church. Uh, and even if you're not jumping up and down having the campfire experience, uh, you need to you need to adjust, uh, adjust your lens because God has promised mm-hmm. to be there. It's not based on whether or not you feel him there emotionally, but God has promised to be there. And I think that there should be more respect for for the Sunday services, not, not, okay, well, the Asbury Revival is a special holy event and I've got to go there and now I can bring this magic back to my own, <clears throat> to my own congregation. No, your congregation, if it has the word and sacraments, two or three gathered in, in God's name, God is there, and that, and that needs to be acknowledged, whether or not you feel it. So those are kind of my thoughts on the Asbury mm-hmm. Revival. I don't know if you, had, if you had more on top of that. The only thing uh, I wanted to add on there was uh, the, the feeling that the— the feeling— <laughs> uh, but, but, but the thought that the Holy Spirit isn't around unless you're feeling it, it's not just— uh, bad at a congregational level, it becomes really toxic at a personal level. Like uh, I've been told to my face 
uh, that I am not saved because I never had an emotional experience where I broke oh, down boy. crying and yeah, repented of all my sins. Yeah. It, yeah, I never had a conversion experience. I was uh, born in a Christian family. I've been going to church uh, my entire life. I've been to a couple different denominations of churches. I, I grew up Methodist, uh, was confirmed Lutheran, uh, moved somewhere where Lutherans just didn't exist, so went to a Baptist church for a couple years. And uh, after some rigorous study, <laughs> I suppose, I've, I, I've settled very firmly into Lutheranism. Uh, but uh, it, it, it's very upsetting to have grown up Christian, know that I have faith, I know that I'm saved, I, I, I have assurance of salvation, but because uh, I grew up that way and I never had a moment where I realized just how awful a person I am, and I, chief of <laughs> sinners am I, uh, but I never had a moment where I broke down crying and uh, bro broke down crying in the rain and just wailed at God, oh why, please forgive me because I f uh, was giving up prostitution and uh, drugs after 50 years. <laughs> right, right. I suppose is is that's that's the kind of bar to so you, you uh, need to uh, be sin saved. more that God's grace mm -hmm. may abound more, just like Romans chapter absolutely. Six. <laughs> there there so we go. That's a simple <laughs> solution. Yeah, there's absolutely Rasputin is 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 my role model. Yeah, um. yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, no, that's 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 actually again, that's also infuriating. This this idea that you are you are a second rate Christian because you didn't. You didn't have a dramatic enough experience, and it kind of puts this expectation on people that uh, almost almost to lie and to sort of exaggerate their life and say, "Well, I was a Christian. I had this amazing conversion experience," and you you feel left out. You're like, "Well, I'm just a, a boring Christian. My parents were Christian, and then I I continued to be a Christian, and yeah, some interesting stuff may or may not have happened in my life. But am I am I you know when do I get to share my story?" So well, I was a yeah. uh, I, I I was a leader at a Christian camp for well I was in high school but you know it was it, it was for uh, elementary and middle school kids and uh, so I, I I was a counselor for that event um, and I got to see people in sixth grade uh, breaking down in tears because they were having their conversion experience oh, right boy. there at a Christian camp when I'd seen them at church every Sunday the entire time I'd been going to that church and they had to have been. <laughs> Not discounting their experience. I'm sure it's very emotional for a sixth grader. Yeah. But you know full well they were only doing that because they had seen their parents and their parents' friends do it. it and it's not... I can't speak to their hearts, but they're, 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 there is a pressure in, in those sorts of environments to exaggerate. You're absolutely right about that. And yeah, I, yeah. I've this seen is it what Christians do. Exaggeration. This, yeah, this is how you know... Well, okay, so th this... I, I, and, and I know I said I was summarizing, but this, this kind of brings up another topic that I wanted to, to talk about is this idea of the assurance of your salvation. You mentioned that you have the assurance of salvation, but this is another major and major, major danger that I see about this sort of emotional-based faith. So the the role of the role of emotion we talked about the role of emotion in worship and the role of emotion uh, in the presence of the Holy Spirit but the role of emotion in, in in faith and for some people they say well I know I'm a Christian because I can feel the presence of the Holy Spirit etc cetera, etc cetera. but I I cannot tell you because I I don't have enough fingers to count this high how many people I've talked to that say I'm not sure that I'm a Christian anymore. I just don't feel the passion that I used to feel. I don't know that I'm a Christian because I don't have that emotional kind of experience that I see other people having. Am I really saved? I don't feel like I'm saved, and it terrifies me. So what would you say, and I've got a response to this, of course, <laughs> or else that would be a pretty, pretty terrible pastor. What would you say to somebody who, who comes up to you and says, uh, you know, Miss, Mr. Alabas, as I see you on the street, and then, <laughs> 
And then I say, <laughs> I, I, I am not having the emotional experience that, that I had before when I was a six-year-old at, at your camp. Um, how do I know that I'm still saved if I'm not, if I don't, I don't feel saved? Well, <laughs> I don't have a clean and clear-cut answer to this because I, I'm rather thankful I haven't been put in that situation. Um, oh, but... I do, I do. <laughs> What? I'm, I, it's every your Lutheran, job too. Well, no, every Lutheran <laughs> right now is 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 like screaming at their at their phone or whatever they're listening on. They're saying, "I know it. I know the assurance of salvation." So go so go ahead. And... The assurance of salvation is baptism there because it's you not go. your work. It's not your feelings. <laughs> it's about what Christ did for you. Yes. You are baptized. You have been clothed in righteousness. It's not about you, what you, you have feel. Been it's about sealed. what Christ did. <laughs> and, and and baptism does not cease to be effective just because you don't feel it. Your your mother and yes. father do not. See Cease to love you just because you don't feel it anymore. Like it's, oh, it's, so it's, it's subjective versus objective. And, and the difficulty there is, is that a lot of people, and again, I get this because I interact with other denominations as chaplains and stuff. Um, mm -hmm. And, and obviously the Lutherans are the best ones, but the uh, clearly, <laughs> denominations, <clearly>. Uh, they, <laughs> they often struggle with answering this question because these people say, well, I don't, I don't feel saved anymore. And then they're often given homework like, okay, we'll go back and go through these experiences and try to rekindle, you know, be on fire for Christ, try to rekindle that, that emotion, the, the, these kind of examples of, I want you it's to go back. It's just a great way to get people to give up. Like, oh, well, not oh, good yeah. enough. <laughs> yeah. I mean, so yeah, you're either going to come to one of one or two one of two conclusions. Either you're going to you're going to you're going to kind of get a false sort of pride and egoism about, you know, well, I know that I'm safe because I, you know, I behave well. It's kind of it's kind of looking at And then it worked works. for you. So that's when you start telling other people who haven't oh, those, yeah. had those experiences that they're not saved because this worked really well for you. You came to Christ and you got so on fire for Christ fire because Christ. you were to, you weren't certain of, of your salvation. So you went through and you did this and congratulations, but you're yeah. just putting peril into other people's ears yeah, when I you say a, those things. I took a bunch of peyote <laughs> and I wandered in the wilderness, you know, wilderness before <laughs> when I came out, you know, uh, yeah, no, it's, oh, it's, it's not, I mean, it's not, I want to scream. It's not about you. It's not about your feelings. Your, your, your emotion is important. And an emotion is an important component of your faith. And your faith often does create emotion. All of these things are true. And yet your, your, your faith, your salvation is not dependent on your emotion. It's not dependent on whether you feel saved. Whether or not God loves you does not depend on whether or not you feel loved enough. That's not, that's not the promise and the guarantee. And there, there are promises and guarantees of salvation in scripture. And none of them are, well, if you feel my love, therefore you have my love. And it, it seems like such a convenient cop-out to tell people to say, well, just search your heart and, and look at the life around you and, you know, look at the, look at how beautiful things are. And that's how you know that, that God loves you. Sure. That, that I mean, though, that, that, that's true in a degree. You consider the lilies. God, God makes beautiful things and good things in people's life uh, because he loves them, but that's not the proof. I mean, that's, that's more evidence that he loves them, but that's not, okay, well, what about the person who's got, who's got cancer? What about the person who's a prisoner of war? What about the person who's got a miserable life and they just can't seem to find anything around them to find comfort in? They need to be able to find comfort in something outside of themselves and something outside of their experience. And that's, that's baptism. That's, well, mm -hmm. were you baptized? Do you, you know, often a lot of people when they're conflicted about this, they say, well, I don't know if I believe. And I said, well, you know what? If you didn't believe, you wouldn't care. If you, if, if you had yeah. no faith you wouldn't care if you, you know, say I hate God or whatever, 
Why would you care if you were saved or not? You wouldn't care at all. The fact that you have doubt means that you have faith. You cannot have that. doubt without faith. Um, but yeah, so that's that, that, that's kind of what I would go to. So again, sort of the, the role of emotion in faith and the role of emotion in, in assurance of salvation, I think, um, that that's kind of, I would say that's kind of a summary of, well, I don't know. Did you have anything else to add on that, on the, on the role of emotion in, in the assurance of salvation? I, I, I think that's, we, we've covered that. <laughs> we've beaten that horse to death, and now it is, it is glue because we have continued to beat it. Okay, we are going to move into the next, the next portion, uh, and I'm going I'm I'm to call, call it uh, Free For All Friday uh, because it's Friday, and now I'm going to ask people to start posting questions, questions in, the, in, the, in the chat. Uh, there's there's kind of two channels that I'm going to be looking at. Um, all right, uh, let's see. So so the first question. Uh, so I'm going to go with uh, with the Loch Ness monster because um, he types a lot of questions. So so he points something out. He says, "I once had a personal experience, quote unquote, while I was praying to the Sikh God before I converted to Christianity. Was this really God, a demon? Do you think I merely tricked myself? Uh, you want to try to take that first? So. Yeah, I've been staring that question down for a good few <laughs> minutes now. Um, <laughs> uh, was this really God, a demon? Do you think I merely tricked myself? Um, not really God is the is is the one answer I would like to confirm there. A demon or did you trick yourself? I don't know. Maybe, maybe <laughs> either or or both. I don't know. Um, but uh, that does bring up a question. Uh, or not a question, but it does bring up a really good point. Uh Something like the, is it in the Book of Mormon or is it just a Mormon teaching? I can't remember. But somewhere, somewhere that Mormon missionaries will try to get you on is uh, read the Book of Mormon and pray if it's true. And God will tell you that it is. And that's 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 how they get you. That's how they get more Mormons. And I've seen that work on someone. Someone in Christ Corps just a couple of years ago, I think. Do you know uh, the phrase Mormon... they use for that one? Have you heard this phrase um, before? A burning in the bosom. You will feel a, a burning, burning in the bosom. That's it. I, 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 I fire forgot. For Christ. <laughs> a burning on in the fire bosom, for it. Yeah, yeah but uh, yeah. So it, it, it goes to show that emotions are tricky. Emotions yeah. are they 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 very very easily lead you astray, and it is easy to fool yourself. The music can manipulate you and make you break down in a in, in a church that uh, touts itself as as christian if the music can make you break down in a christian church and that's just emotional manipulation other denominations can do that too in the same way that other denominate not, uh, other, uh, not religions, denominations, other yeah, religions well, is what yeah. i meant other religions yeah. uh in the same way that uh other religions have their own uh miracles that they'll point at and it doesn't it doesn't prove anything i think i was listening to I was listening to one of your podcasts or videos earlier today, and uh, you talked about the uh, magicians in, in Egypt that did uh, magic oh, yeah, and cool. and miracles that matched the first few of, of Moses's. Um, but it, it, it it's basically the same thing, I would think. Any personal experience you have with a non-Christian god, I couldn't say whether it's a demon or, or tricking yourself, but it goes to show the trickiness of emotion, because... I don't want to make this a point uh, where, well, if these guys are tricking you, then uh, why isn't why isn't it the case that Christianity is tricking you? Because you can't say anything without fully explaining yourself without <laughs> on the internet, at least. Uh, but other reasons that Christianity is true, but it does go to show, I think, that personal experiences with other religions and just the emotional experience in general isn't 
isn't trustworthy. It's tricky. It's it's manipulative. Yeah, yeah. And I wouldn't say that that just because you feel an emotion, and I know, I know you're not saying this either, just because you feel an emotion that you automatically have to assume that it's a lie. But I, I would okay, say that, yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> put this in the same category as you would. Uh, and this is another question I get asked a lot. I, I had this. I mean, the heart is a liar above all else. I, yes. Well, this is true. Yeah, it's um, what I mean. <laughs> but, but, but maybe, yeah. So, so I, I would put this in the same category that I would put sort of dreams and, and, and people get, you know, ideas and stuff. And they'll ask me, they'll say, you know, was God telling me this? Was, you know, did God lay this on my heart? This sort of thing. I had a dream. Does this mean such and such? Or some people say, I, I, I had a vision. Um, near-death experiences and stuff like that happen all the time. And in, in, in these questions where you had a personal experience, where you had a vision, where you had a dream, where you had uh, something that you, would, that you would kind of even say, well, this, this seems like a prophecy to me. In these cases, the way that you know if it's from God or not, what does it point you towards? Does it point you towards Christ and him crucified, or does it point you away? So in the case of mm-hmm. you've got... Let's say you're Joseph Smith and you've got an angel appeared. I mean, like just assume that he didn't make it all up and an angel appeared to him and showed him golden tablets and there were these miracles and all the and all these reasons to kind of believe things contrary to scripture. The fact that it pointed away from Christ and him crucified, the fact that it pointed away from Christianity, I would say that no, at this point you have to say, okay, maybe I'm hallucinating, maybe I had a bad burrito, maybe it, it, it was a demon. I, and there's any number of reasons why you might experience or, or see or hallucinate or, you know, all these other things. But the Ultimately, way it doesn't matter, Christ, the reason. Is yeah. <laughs> well, the, so Muhammad, same, same sort of concept. Muhammad, let's say, yeah. well, I mean, if, if you study his history, according to the people around him, he would regularly, he was suicidal. He regularly thought that um, that he was he was demon-possessed and, and he was having hallucinations and stuff like that. And and he concluded from, from some of his visions, um, uh, presumably, that he had that, you know, that the Bible, the manuscripts had all been corrupted. Same, same exact premises as Mormonism mm-hmm. just a couple hundred years earlier. Uh, yeah. And, and the fact of the matter is, if he had taken those things and tested them against Scripture, you know, the Bible tells us to actually to te- you know, test the spirits, to test these things against Scripture. If you have these, these sensations and these experiences, you want to know if they're from God, what do they tell you to do? Do they tell you to go to Christ? And there are examples of, let's say, let's say Muslims, for example, and this is something that I've heard about a few times, more than a few examples, is uh, among Muslim refugees in, in, in countries in Europe is that they've had no no connection to Christianity whatsoever, but they'll have these visions that kind of point to them, point them to Christ, and say, "Go and seek out Christians. Talk to Christians about the Bible. Talk to Christians about Jesus Christ." And as a result of these things, the Muslims actually end up converting. Now, how that came about, what what methods God used to do that, I'm not sure, but I, but I am convinced that this is God working through some sort of means to bring people to mm-hmm. Christ. If the, the, the point of the, the dreams and visions and experiences is to, is to bring you away from Christ. It is not of God. Is it a hallucination? Is it a demon? Maybe one of those things, maybe something else? Sure, but it doesn't really matter. It's something to be ignored if it brings you away from the faith. Yeah. Um, do you, I'm sure you're familiar with uh, Chris Rosebro. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, he has a video i can't remember which one i listened to him while i do dishes <laughs> so, uh, but he he talked once i don't know when the video was posted anymore and i'm sure he said it multiple times but he talked about his own experience uh i believe he was pentecostal and became lutheran and now he's yeah. a pastor i think that's how that went yeah, something along um yeah. something along those lines but he talked once about a 
vision or a dream that he personally had, if I recall it correctly, and maybe somebody in the comments here on YouTube a few weeks from now can correct me if I'm remembering it wrong, uh, but when the Pope before Francis, it was Benedict something, right? Yeah. yeah. Uh, when Pope Benedict, he didn't, he only died recently. He got put out did of he, office did for he some die? reason. I can't remember. I don't think did he, he died. Die? I, I think, I think I heard alive. something, he had... maybe about putting in the hospital or something. So, oh. There was some news. There he was got... some news a while ago, but he I might just be misremembering. <laughs> yeah. I don't, I, 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 I can't remember. It doesn't matter. I, I but while they were not. still deciding. I, I mean, he, he, he may I, not, may not be, be Catholic enough, but I, you know, in terms of Pope. Francis has been the Pope as far back as I can remember. I have no feelings about Benedict. <laughs> You're, you're missing. I'll get uh, you, I'll get you hooked on some Benedict reading material later and people. Are fantastic. Going, Thank yeah. you. So, sorry. Um, keep going. But uh, he says, while they were still trying to decide on a new Pope, he had a dream that he was in Rome and uh, they decided on a Pope. He could see the, the colored smoke that uh, announces. I can't remember which color I because I don't know enough pope. about that. Yeah. So they, they decided on a Pope. So it's, it's white smoke. And there was, I think a Bishop passing by is what he said. And he asked, there's a new Pope. What's who is it? And they said, it's Pope Francis. And then the next day Pope Francis was elected. He'd never heard the name before. So like, whoa, whoa, out of, out of the blue. And is Chris Roseborough a prophet? He'll, he'll tell oh, you. Yeah, no. Yeah, no. I, I heard what that does that prophecy story, yeah. do? Yeah. Cause what does that prophecy do? It doesn't point to anything. <laughs> it's not guiding him toward Christ. It's, it's a dream that said something, and there hasn't been one since, as far as I know. He, I haven't heard him talk about, but well, in, in, I don't in, know. In, but he doesn't consider himself a prophet, and he wouldn't take that as proof of it, or yeah. uh, that that experience is necessarily even from God. Well, in addition to that, there's also kind of the distinction between, okay, uh, the Bible talks about people who, who act in sort of a, a prophetic who who have prophecies or who prophesy mm -hmm. and and I love the I love the pigeon Hawaiian pigeon translation because it doesn't use the word prophet it says the people to talk for God and, uh, and no I'm not <laughs> that's exactly how it's spelled um, and, and 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 that's true so when you're reading the Bible if you want to squint and say I'm prophesying by reading the Bible yeah that's I mean in some sense of the word you are prophesying by reading God's word you're speaking for God because you're literally literally speaking out loud the words that God has written. That being mm -hmm. said, is somebody a, a, a prophet, a capital P, it's like capital A apostle, is somebody a prophet? And we would all point to Hebrews 1, verses 1 and 2, you know, in, in, in many, in various, many ways, God spoke to people of old by his prophets, but now in these last days, he has spoken to us by Christ Jesus, our Lord, that the, that the office of prophet, capital P prophet, has been closed and is closed with, with Christ. We no longer need prophets to point us forward to Christ because he's already come. And that was that was kind of that was the role of prophets was point people to God, the people that speak for God, uh, and and kind of and ultimately point people back or point people forward to God. In the, in the case of the Israelites, a lot of times the prophets would show up and and kind of point them back and say, "You've you know you have these scriptures and you're rejecting them." Um, so I'd like to move on to a couple other. So there's another. So I'm jumping over to the to the other discussion debate chat, uh, and yep. and somebody who's got uh, Cyrillic characters for a name that I can't read, and I would butcher. It's either Alexander or Alejander, but I could not tell you which. I can't read Cyrillic. I can read Greek. I can't read Cyrillic. Yeah, it's, it's it's close. <laughs> uh, yeah, I know the row at the end. Okay, so um, so he says I don't fully understand why it isn't good to have sermons on different topics. And now, and he says I think for example, uh, Orthodox homilies are are often on different topics, not pre-planned for a year. Uh, differently, uh, differently from the lectionary. For example, in Scripture, Jude planned to write about X, but he understood it is better to write about Y in a given case. Um, 
I'm not, I, yeah, I don't know if I, you know, I know Rome has, has lectionaries. I know, I mean, they had the one-year lectionary and then they switched over to the three-year lectionary. And then out of stubbornness, us Lutherans, they retained the one-year lectionary because it's older. Um, the three-year lectionary is good too, but, but mm-hmm. I'm not sure if the Eastern Orthodox have, have lectionaries. I would say that it's, it's not necessarily, it's not necessarily bad to have sermons on different topics. It, it can be good because a, a lot of times there are different topics that need to be discussed. Um, if, for example, in the United States, we're celebrating Thanksgiving, mm-hmm. a lot of times on Thanksgiving, if you have the service, uh, a lot of times the text that is used is the 10 lepers, and you, know, and you talk about thankfulness and stuff like that. So there are there mm-hmm. is a place for topical sermons. The reason for the lectionary is to kind of give a little bit of uniformity to people, um, and because there are, there are wise people who came before us and developed these lectionaries to say, look, these... These texts fit together. For example, my favorite example is, is Good Shepherd Sunday, is, is you've got these Old Testament and New Testament, Testament texts all about uh, God as, as a shepherd. God is a good shepherd. It's got like Psalm 23 in it. And then uh, the, the, the gospel reading, Jesus is talking about, I am the good shepherd, um, that sort of thing. So it's, it's just the lectionary, it was not handed down by God. God didn't say you have to preach mm-hmm. on this text. But it's it's good to have structure. It's good to to have a degree of kind of cooperation with other churches. Other churches preach on the same text on the same day as you do. It's kind of nice uh, because uh, you can kind of communicate. My my father and I, for example, we both we both kind of prepare for we prepare individual sermons. He, he does his in Spanish, uh, but we go back and forth talking about the text, and it helps us to both prepare, prepare our individual sermons. And the danger of only doing topical ones is sometimes you get an idea in your head and you want to preach on a thing and then you just so you you just go through the bible trying to find text that supports what you already want to say and that can often lead to to you preaching your eisegesis uh, you preaching your own idea mm-hmm. and trying to make the bible fit it so topical sermons aren't necessarily bad doing sermon studies doing kind of like let's go through the book of philippians or whatever each week one at a time the three-year lectionary does that. Um, that's not necessarily bad either. The lectionary, it's a way to do things. It's not the way, it's a way. Uh, and there, mm-hmm. are, there are upsides and downsides to that. But Ultimately, it's a tool, I would think. Like yeah. you're, you're the one who's gone through seminary, so I suppose you know better than me. But the way oh, I would think of it is it's, <laughs> it's ultimately a tool. Not every pastor is Charles Spurgeon who can just fire off for an hour f- with flawless speech about a new topic every week uh, without planning beforehand. Uh, the, oh yeah! Have it, you read it, it, some of Luther's sermons when he, when he does that? So he'll have he'll have a text, and this this drives me up a wall because I'll read his house apostle sermons on. So for example, we've got Ocula coming on, uh, or Ocula, however you want to pronounce it, the uh, the third Sunday in Lent. Um, and sometimes he'll get a text, uh, and, and and so help you if there's a text from Galatians in there somewhere because he'll start reading the text and he'll he'll start talking about a little bit of what's going on in the text and then he'll just launch into this diatribe about the pope as the antichrist or something like that <laughs> and you're just like how did you get from point A to point B and and a lot of times he just uses the text as a jumping off point to to talk about another topic so yeah that's the mm-hmm. other thing is like how strictly are you bound bound to the text. For example, we've got, and, and spoiler alert, I am not, nobody listening to this goes to my church, I don't think. Um, so for this Sunday, we've got the the healing of the mute man and, you know, the the, the, the house divided thing, you know, you cast out mm-hmm. demons by the help of Beelzebul. Um, and and on this, there's, there's a million different things that you can preach on. And I'm really fixated on this house divided thing. So I, I wanted to talk about divisions within the church. The text itself does not talk about divisions within the church. That's not the point of the gospel reading. Um, 
but it is it, it is something that can kind of be drawn out, you know, uh, as, as a starting off point. So, yeah, I cut you off there. Sorry. I'm the one who drank all the Oh, uh, no, you cut me off at the perfect time. Uh, uh, I live in a house with roommates. One of my roommates has a cat that gets fed twice <laughs> daily, and my cat likes to steal his food, so they just uh, locked him in my room with me. And so if, if you hear meowing now, it's because he's the loudest cat in the world. Uh, yeah, and he's very I'll unhappy to be locked in here. It's you uh, doing that. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Uh, meow. Yeah. Um, oh, but... <laughs> jump on. Uh, so uh, Loch Ness has, has a couple more comments. If you wanted to, to read those mm-hmm. and jump on those. Uh, let me let me look over them now. I forgot to look. Um do we not want to take a look oh, at Braden's so question Yeah, Braden's got a question yeah. first. So yeah, why don't you start with that one? Yeah. All right. I want to get closer with God and feel as if I should start learning more about his word. How can I uh, start getting into reading the Bible? What books can I start out with? Uh, good on you for wanting to get closer. Um, you have the Orthodox and Baptist roles. That's a very interesting mix you've got there. Um, <laughs> but best thing you can do is uh, read your Bible and go to church weekly and talk with your pastor if you can. Um, I think that a good place to start in the Bible would have to be... It's such a difficult question. People want to start with Genesis, and that's a horrible starting place. Uh, start with Job. It's, it's the... Start with Job and then read Daniel. Start with Job? <laughs> Job, do it. This is, this is your reading schedule. First, Job, cover to cover, all 40-something chapters. Then Daniel, then Revelation. Uh, Do not listen to this man. He is leading then, you astray. Then number. No, no, then uh, then Leviticus. Here I think First Chronicles is a good starting point, actually. Yeah. That's also a joke. Don't. Um, I would think one of the Gospels, certainly. Uh, Mark is the shortest, but uh, it... it, it it tells you what happens. Yeah, so, uh, Matthew's so, a good starting. Yeah, Matthew's a good book. It references the Old Testament and points out the prophecies that Christ fulfilled. A lot of people will want you to start with John. Uh, it's easy. It has John 3.16. I think that's the reason people want you to start with John is because uh, it has some very spiritually important verses. But, you know, the, the, the tradition around John, I think, I don't think it's true, but I think Erasmus cites it. Uh, not Erasmus, uh, Eusebius of Caesarea uh, cites it as the origin, is Matthew, Mark, and Luke were all written, and they were presented to John by his disciples, and he read over them, and he was like, oh yeah, these are great, but they left out some details, so here's that. And John is actually just like filling in the gaps of the three uh, synoptic gospels. Um, but so, uh, while I don't think that tradition is true necessarily, I think it is uh, telling. John does look at the life of Christ as described in the synoptic gospels and fill it in more spiritually uh, and, and, and explains things. I'm just repeating myself in a more spiritual uh, way. I feel like John is best read with the context of already knowing what's going to happen. Yeah. (laughs) So no, Um, and I'm going to go against, so I'm going to kind of halfway agree with you. You should, you should probably start with the gospels. And if you read the old Testament, um, with the understanding first of, of what happens in the gospel accounts, the life, the life of Jesus, um, they make a lot more sense. So you understand a lot of stuff mm-hmm. in the Old Testament having read uh, particularly the, the gospels first. So the gospels are going to be... like being given the answer book first. The Old yeah. Testament points towards Christ. So if you're starting with Christ, you, you have the answer 
Yeah, you yeah. don't have to have the prophecies explained. You just get to look back at them. Yeah, the gospel. <laughs> the gospels. That's that's the that's that's what you need to know. You need to know what's what's in the gospel. Um, the Old Testament is is the prequel. This is everything that leads up to it, and this is how you see everything foreshadowed that happens in the gospel. But if you know what happens in the gospel first, it makes more sense. And then the epistles, everything kind of that comes after the four gospel accounts, um, with the exception of Acts, is uh, these are kind of these are commentary. This is this is explanation of of what is being taught in the gospels. With that, I would say. Actually, if if you're if you're fairly new to Christianity, I would actually say start with the book of Luke and read through Luke and the book of Acts because they're both they're two parts of the same book or they're two books in the same series. And what Luke does that makes sense is he gives you a very so Matthew is written with the understanding that you are a Hebrew and you understand a bunch of stuff that happens in the Old Testament. Uh, Mark is written in the sense of it's it's kind of a summary. It's easy to it's easy to memorize. It's in many ways a lot of things are restated that are that are already kind of given in 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 Matthew. John is it cuts is, off in a really weird place. Yeah, oh yeah, it does. <laughs> uh, and then John is kind of yeah, the, the spiritual aspect. It's it's kind of okay, well, if Matthew and Mark kind of talk a lot about the histories and a lot of a lot of the sayings, John talks about a lot of the the spiritual metaphysical reality behind it. John's a bit of a, a, a space case. Uh, it, God God bless him. He's he's wonderful. But if you want a very technical, like what happened, why does this matter? Um, then I would say start with Luke. Uh, Luke is very clinical, and I use that word on purpose. Um, Luke's gospel. Luke was not an apostle, but Luke, uh, from what we understand, from what I understand, Luke actually collected kind of interviews of people who were involved. Uh, so, for example, he's got he's got the birth narrative. He's also got the history leading up to the birth of Jesus. So you have. Presumably, Mary, Luke talked to Mary and kind of got her account and, and the explanation of, you know, the angel coming to, to Mary and the angel coming to um, uh, coming to Joseph and, and Mary visiting and, and doing the Magnificat and all these other things. So you have this explanation of this is the, the entire story of Jesus from the point of the conception. So when God became incarnate uh, as human, from, the, from kind of the point of the conception, all the way through to the death, the resurrection, and the ascension. And then the book of Acts kind of explains uh, what happened with the apostles who were following along with him. So if you so if you go through Luke and Acts, you have the sort of historical understanding of this is what happened. And then all of the other books kind of explain why why it matters. Why does it matter that, you know, Jesus died on the cross? Why does it matter that, you know, the sacrificial system? Why did we need Jesus? All this other stuff. So my recommendation, I mean, you can't go wrong starting with any of the gospel uh, accounts, but my recommendation, if you're very new to this, it would be actually be to start with Luke and then read through Acts, um, and then maybe go and read the other gospel accounts, and that'll kind of help solidify what you are. You, oh, yeah, I remember reading about this in Luke. Uh, you know, a lot of the accounts are paralleled between certain gospels. Um, yeah, so let's let's go on to another question. Um, oh, I forgot to read Lockheed's again. Yeah. <laughs> So yeah, so Lockheed's actually, I'll, I'll read this. So, so after, after Braden, Lockheed said, um, I have a friend who seems to be on the verge of converting to Shia Islam. He cites personal experiences, feeling Allah with prayer and a, and a dream slash vision he had. Again, I would refer to kind of like the, the burning in the bosom type thing. Uh, he doesn't seem to be willing to quote anti-Islamic arguments, end quote, and only seems to pay lip service to considering the gospel only in the form of Islam versus Christianity. The only time I've seen him pause is when I argued against Shiaism, the authority of Ali uh, within Islamic framework. Specifically, how should I proceed? Is he a lost cause? I would say, if it's just you arguing with him, yes, it's a lost cause because only the Holy Spirit converts a heart. But the Holy Spirit does work through uh, the gospel. A lot of times the best way to argue is to put up the truth of Christianity in contrast 
to the falsehood of other religions. I'm going to just keep reading Lockie's. Uh, during all mm -hmm. these discussions, uh, you may have guessed that I discussed with my non-Christian friends, and I've been asked a few times, what would it take to change your mind about Christianity, or what would bring you to my religion? Um, I feel far too close-minded if I were to answer, no, nothing could change my views, but I feel like answering yes would make the religious seem weak, and I and I never know what would realistically change about my views, because to be honest, I don't know if anything could. What should I answer? Uh, my answer would be, you should not believe Chris in Christianity if it's not true. The reason you believe in Christianity is because true, and because it is true, and you have you have all these evidences, and you have internal and external kind of evidences for why it's true. That you can point to it as an example, but the but you should believe Christianity if and only if it is true. Not if it's a it, it's you know an attractive worldview. Not if it's a, a cultural thing. None of those things matter. This is this is a question about truth. Is the Bible true? Is Christianity true? If it's not true, then throw it in the garbage. I, I, I don't need any sort of nonsense, hippie sort of, well, Christianity makes me a good person. I do not care. If it is not true, then I, I would cease to believe it. That being said, I have been given no, no information that leads me to even suspect that Christianity is, is not true. But, you know, uh, I, 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 of course, have studied all of the arguments. <laughs> uh, I, I always <laughs> ask people to kind of present these things to me, and this is, this is a way to start the discussion. If somebody, this, so for you, Lockie, I would actually say, based on both of these questions, if somebody wants to say, well, I don't believe in Christianity because of X, Y, and Z, or, or they want to present some reason to doubt Christianity, a lot of times they'll actually start trying to quote Bible verses. Well, this is an, a, a perfect opportunity for you to talk about the Bible. You can say, oh, yes, let's read that Bible verse and the, and the context. And you've activated my trap card. <laughs> yeah, you've activated it. Yeah, let's talk about the Bible. So, oh, Christianity is not true because it says this in the Bible. I'm like, oh, yes, let's talk about the Bible. <laughs> so well, how, how would you respond, uh, Alabas? Um, no, actually, I, I'm going to steal your answer and not expand on it any further. I haven't had a good answer to that, and that is a failing on my part. <laughs> uh, fortunately, it's never mattered, because when I get asked that, it's always in the Ask Christians channel of this server, and I have somebody else to tap in to t uh, take the reins on it. <laughs> well, so, so what I usually fall back on if I don't feel like having an argument like that, or having a conversation, is I'll just say post-physique. Post-physique. How much do you bench? <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll settle this like men. Okay. How do you know Christianity's true? Because I'm never wrong. What more do you want? Yeah, how uh, do you know Christianity's true? Because I can bench over 300 pounds. What's your argument? Uh, 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 that's right. <laughs> no, it's, it's, it's just kind of in general. I, I kind of get... Uh, in the place where Lockie is, and sometimes I'll, I, I would point it out to them, like, you've asked me this question, but what would you say to me if I asked it to you? You don't have a good answer, do you? And they never ever do, because it's it's just a gotcha to end the conversation, generally, yeah. at least no, in that channel, which is where that's, I approach That's good. It. That's good. That's a really good point. You need to... So, a lot of times when they ask a question... Um, if they're asking the question, that kind of puts you in a spot where you are free to ask the same question. If they're saying, well, this is a problem, you know... I, uh, the Bible was written by men. This is one of the things that comes on. You know, you, you can't believe the mm -hmm. Bible. The Bible is written by men, uh, and they believe in Islam. I say, well, the Quran was written by men too. And in fact, the Quran wasn't even written by wasn't even written by Muhammad. Nobody's sure exactly the. It's origin. controversial to write it down in the first place. Yeah, it's controversial <laughs> to write it down in the first place, and people argue about like who wrote it down and who were the right followers. And you've got this whole division between uh, Sunni and Shia because of this, and and, and like it, it's a compilation of people writing down what they think they remember. Uh, Muhammad talked about. I've actually heard this is fascinating. I would love to dive into this because I, I just heard somebody posit this. Well, I'll like, definitely tap off to you uh, yeah. or tap tap off whatever you say. Yeah. So well. So the um. So somebody said um, there is a there is a, actually a theory that Muhammad wasn't a real person. 
There's actually a theory that this is kind of a cultural movement that developed and there were a couple different people involved and they basically made up this concept of this, of a central prophet. Now I would have to see a lot of very interesting evidence on that topic and I'd never heard it before. I'm like, you know what? I, hmm, we don't, cause the Quran isn't an autograph by Muhammad. So, you know, what evidence, what evidence do you have that Muhammad actually existed? I mean, there's, there's evidence we have that that Jesus existed. Obviously there's even secular sources that talk about Jesus, but mm-hmm. Muhammad, that's, that's interesting. And I, I guess I just don't know enough about that topic. So it'd be interesting to, to learn more. Um, so, yeah. uh, I actually had the great benefit of, so, uh, partway through my college experience, I, uh, pivoted to studying, uh, ancient Mesopotamia and the ancient Middle East in general, because I really, I got real into the uh, context of the Old Testament. I wanted to know what was actually going on around Israel that the Jews were dealing with. What's the context of all these things in, in, in the Old Testament? As it turns out, I just really liked that history. Uh, but I took a history of Islam class uh, as an independent study with the uh, with one of the deans at uh, my college. Uh, I don't want to say his name, just in case I misquote something and he gets mad. Uh, I'll just oh, yes, try not to. He'll, he'll be listening to this. He's one of the... Absolutely, the absolutely he will. Like and subscribe um, to the podcast, share. <laughs> All right, go on. Um, but his whole uh, field of study was the uh, was Islamic history. He did his thesis on something about uh, Luther and Islam during, during Luther's life, I think, was what it was. Uh, I have not read his dissertation. I should, but I haven't. Uh, but I did Islamic history with him. And uh, one of the things that stood out to me that he said uh, was the Quran is not, it is pretty Arabic, kind of, but there are sections that just don't make sense. Uh, There's at least one section that makes absolutely no sense in uh, Arabic. And even Muslims will tell you this section is nonsense in Arabic. And he says, uh, somebody did a study and compared that section, I think it was translated, they translated it into Aramaic, and it near, very, very near exactly matched mm. a contemporary Nestorian Christian uh, liturgy, <laughs> <laughs> which is just hilarious. And then uh, I think he said that it was a German scholar that did that, and he immediately got death threats from... <laughs> uh, from from some radical Muslims in the Middle East, and he is currently under like witness protection in Germany. And to get a hold of his scholarship costs a lot of money. Um, yeah, maybe it was Syriac, Syriac, Aramaic. There's well, it, not a ton of difference between those. Uh, um, but very very interesting. Uh, the area that Muhammad. I don't think he argued that Muhammad didn't exist. There's a difficulty with sources in that contemporary ones don't exist uh just you know writing in that place and time isn't preserved really great the quran was all verbal for what was it uh 100 150 200 years after uh the date that would have been muhammad's death and it was it, it, it was a source of pride to memorize it all you needed to have the quran uh, memorized to write it down in the first place was was troublesome if the i believe he said the dome of the rock in uh jerusalem has verses of the quran written inside of it and they're wrong they don't <laughs> match what's actually in the quran but we know the quranic verses written before the quran was fully written down <laughs> during that whole controversy 
the area that Muhammad grew up in, uh, in, in, in Arabia, is an interesting location because as Jews were uh, exiled from uh, Rome, and they kind of thrived in the uh, Sasanian Empire, um, but they existed in Arabia. Muhammad would have been familiar with Jews, and even uh, in, we, we know from the history of uh, Muhammad that he interacted with Jewish tribes in Arabia. We, he also very likely interacted with Nestorian Christians and um, and Zoroastrians. He was familiar with all of these groups, <laughs> and uh, looking into it, looking into the sources, uh, I don't think I would argue that Muhammad is wasn't a real person, but I would say we don't know a lot about him. There's not a ton of evidence to say that much of what he taught is necessarily original uh, to him or, you know, like uh, original uh, revelation. There's a lot that's taken from things around him, <laughs> from, uh, from uh, the Jews and the Nestorians and the Zoroastrians, as far as he can understand them. And that's why he relates to them so much uh, in the Quran. In one book, he's accepting of them as fellow people of the book, and in others, they're condemned because they're not Muslim. It's, it's, it's very interesting and very, very messy because there's no sources before a couple hundred years later, none at all. Yeah, the, um, I guess, I mean, if I could snap my fingers and just be an expert on, on Islam, and, and there's just so many different aspects of it that I think have to be studied to really get the full picture of that. I mean, we can talk about, I can talk about Roman Catholicism to a certain degree of of, of accuracy because uh, somebody said the dome of the rock is uh somewhere north of arabia instead of jerusalem closer to medina i may have misremembered uh so if somewhere. i miss said something just assume that i didn't mean to uh don't don't worry about it yeah i'm never it, wrong <laughs> it's it's somewhere in that in that half all yeah. the middle east is the same the same miniature location yeah. <laughs> yeah i just you just take an american view of it but ah it's all sand um, we need, not, we need to bomb Agrabah. Yeah, Agrabah. Where is Agrabah? <laughs> Agrabah. Yeah. Uh, you're going to get that Aladdin character. Yeah. So I'll, I'll start to wrap it up here uh, for this episode. I wanted yeah. to thank everybody who, who participated in the comment section. I want to thank all you guys who are, who are listening, those who are listening on YouTube and, and rumble. And those of you who are listening on whatever podcast provider, uh, I would like to thank Alabas for coming on and being second chair slash producer for the day. Um, and, and helping me out with this. Uh, if you guys would like to see more content like this, please find a way to get in contact with me. Let me know what specific topics you'd like discussed, um, and and I'll look forward to discussing various topics, having various guests on, uh, and even hosting on different Discord servers uh, in the future. Are there any last goodbyes you would like to say, Alabast? Any shout-outs, anything like that? Uh, just uh, subscribe to Christian Combatives is all I really have to say. It's a great channel, doing great things here. Yeah, and I don't get paid for it either, and it's just me doing everything all by myself. Um, <laughs> no, yeah, I, I thank you guys so much for, for all your support. Uh, God bless you all. Take care. <laughs>